Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast with me, Anthony Samarov. It was such a joy to listen back to this interview, and I think you'll really like it, whether you're a parent, or you ever intend to be a parent, or you never intend to be a parent but were once a child. We are getting radical. With Dana Martin, author of Radical Unschooling, you have to get this book if you've not read it already. I just really like the tone in it. It's really down to earth and you use loads of personal anecdotes to illustrate your points. How are you today, Dana? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was really good to have you on the show. Could you just explain what Radical Unschooling is for anyone who doesn't know that yet? Yes, Radical Unschooling is uh, living in a partnership paradigm with your child. It is living life as though school doesn't exist and having your child live with educational freedom. But it doesn't stop just there. Not only does your child live with, with educational freedom, they live in freedom with every choice in their life, meaning they have freedom with bedtimes, media, food. Now, those are the big ones that parents have the biggest struggles with, and I usually work with parents the most on as a parenting coach. But um, my children know what's best for them, and I'm here to support them in that, to give them information. And when a, a trusted uh, base is set and we have connection and we don't live with control, my children believe what I say. They use me as a trusted resource, so I give honest information and we work together and discuss things, and that's just a that's just a peek into the philosophy. Okay, fantastic. I just wanted to mention that you've appeared on the Dr. Phil show, the Jeff Probst show, and Wife Swap. I really, really enjoyed you on Wife Swap. What was that experience like for you? Would you like to say a bit about that? Yeah, it was um, it was a uh, quite a life experience. It was something my family and I discussed. We were uh, approached and asked to be on, and we talked about it, and everybody agreed it was something they wanted to do. So with everybody's full agreement and knowing what we were getting into, we stepped into this world of television for two weeks. Well, it was the whole process was much longer than that, but the actual filming was a very long process. You basically live with 12 people that are here in your home that are producers and camera guys, and my, my kids learned so much as a side effect of that experience. Um, when the other mom was here, that was just a very, very small part of their entire experience. But um, they, they they learned a lot, that's for sure. They appreciated me much more <laughs> after. After having an experience of a different type of parenting, which is maybe more typical. Yeah, it was much more typical. Um, I mean, my, my kids always appreciated me, but I think they appreciated me as an activist and what I do for work, seeing what what most people deal with, what most children deal with on a daily basis. They knew the importance of my mission and personal agenda to bring more peace into the world through parenting. So they really appreciated that aspect of my life after Wife Swap. Okay, great. I wanted to talk about your approach to parenting, which I've heard you call a partnership parenting paradigm. What is that for people who haven't maybe heard that much about it yet? Well, an authoritarian parenting paradigm is what most people do, and it is based on meeting the parents' needs, the parents' needs for quiet, uninterrupted sleep, and overall compliance and obedience. And rarely does it take into account the children's needs and the whole dynamic. In fact, it's based on uh, behavior 
and behavior modification and controlling behavior and manipulating behavior, where this approach is completely different. I believe it's very the most evolved approach to parenting and human evolution. So it's a it's a really big mission, I feel. And I find it um, very akin to the women's rights movement. It, it wasn't very long ago that men were told to beat their wives if dinner wasn't on the table on time. And they were encouraged by their friends and fathers and grandfathers to force their women into sub, subservient roles and obedience and beat them and so forth. And look how far we've come from that. And to me, the same thing is happening with the movement of children's rights. And a partnership parenting paradigm is understanding that everybody's needs in the family matter equally, the parents as well as the children. So my goal is to help parents understand how to let go of behavior modification and controlling behavior, and instead focusing on the needs under the behavior. And a beautiful side effect of doing so is children learn that everybody's needs matter, not just the adult, not just the one in power. And that's a huge, uh, hugely important thing to model. It's, uh, I believe, a mini microcosm of world peace when you care about other people's needs and you don't just force others to meet yours. So it's a, it's a really, um, there's a lot to just to share about this philosophy. So I'm happy to take any more questions you have. Well, I was just going to say that most parents probably think that they are trying to take care of their children's needs in some way, whether that's um, getting them to eat properly and finish everything so that they eat well, to brush their teeth, to get their homework on on time, to get up early and have a good routine. And would you like to say a bit about where parents who would take that position might be mistaken in their approach? Well, there's a lot that you mentioned there, so I'm happy to break it down. Uh, our children have freedom in every area of their lives. We trust our children to make really good, healthy choices. And, and when you don't force children to brush their teeth and you don't force them to go to bed and you don't force them to eat certain foods and clean their plates and so forth, they they come into a really good balance and find um, they self-regulate. I don't necessarily like that term because it sounds like self-limitation and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they find their own balance with everything. My kids voluntarily brush their teeth, go to bed when they're tired, make healthy choices. One of my children are vegan. Um, my son, Devin, who's 15, well, is very health conscious and it's all by his own research and his own choice. Now I know if that was forced upon him, he would completely rebel because that's what humans do when put in a situation where they have no power and they make choices that are really unhealthy based on the, the natural desire to feel freedom and autonomy. Yes, so and I, I, um, I suppose you're um, in a paradigm where hopefully there's nothing to rebel against because you're not using authority to regulate the children. Yeah, I talk about that a lot, that I the whole idea of teen rebellion is a myth, and it's only a side effect of control, that my children have never rebelled because there's nothing to rebel against. We live in partnership with them. I'm not standing between them and what they want to do in life. I help them. I help them get what they want, and they know they can turn to me as a trusted resource for information, for support, and it's a very different role than how most of us were raised. I suppose people have a tendency to think that in order to make, to teach children to make good decisions, they have to first start by making good decisions for them. And somewhere along the line, this magical thing happens where you suddenly become an adult and you're ready to make your own decisions. But it seems quite intuitive to me, actually, 
that people would learn to make better decisions by having the opportunity to make them and observe the consequences of the decisions that they make. Yeah, well, I don't think people realize how much of their current thinking on parenting is, has in, in roots in uh, religion. That it's the, a lot of religious belief that children are born bad and, and needing to be trained to be good, that we need to train children almost like dogs um, by behaving, behavior modification, but through re rewards and punishments and so forth for them to learn to be good. But this is an entirely different spiritual belief. It's the belief that children are born good and that we only need to nurture that natural innate goodness within them. So um, it's a matter of rethinking your entire base of children in general and their, their innate goodness. And this is an interesting point because obviously you have your four children at home every day engaged in direct child directed learning, as I've heard you called it, rather than forced learning. And, and, and one of the objections we often hear to people homeschooling or unschooling their own children is how, how are they going to get a socialization? And even that word, I think, is kind of misleading under your paradigm because it suggests that you need to socialise children into something like they were born bad. Let's suppose that what people mean by socialisation is not trying to mould the children, but help them develop good social skills. I don't think people realise that they've been trained to ask that question, that people just ask it blindly about socialization. They don't even really think about it. It's something they've heard somebody else ask about homeschooling and then they parrot it without a lot of thought into the question. I think what people are trained to ask that for is because um, people want children indoctrinated into an institution and into, into the system. And that's what they mean by socialization. Uh, if they truly mean children getting along with others and being in contact with other human beings, I mean, of course, our children are in the real world every day, and they're not age segregated. Um, children in school are segregated by age, which is such an unnatural dynamic. They have a very hard time socializing themselves with children who are younger and children who are older, and especially adults. And adults are supposed to be, you know, they have the potential to be such an amazing learning resource for children um, in mentorships and partnership and on so many levels. And it's children in school who are extremely handicapped through age segregation. So our children have a huge advantage socially than kids in school. Could you tell us a little bit about what child-directed learning looks like? I've heard you say that you like using the child's own interests as a nucleus of learning. And how does that nucleus spread out to the cell and the entire organism? Yeah, I'm happy to share about that. Uh, radical unschooling, the philosophy in which I promote and share about and which my book is about, is a twofold philosophy. It's unschooling, which is the learning educational aspect of this life. And then it's the other side, which is the partnership parenting aspect, which is extending the trust and freedom that my children have with education into other areas of their lives. So my children have never been punished and they don't live by rules. Instead, we live by principles and we use discussion as a tool. So in, in learning, whatever my kids are interested in is the nucleus of their learning. And I've, I share that in detail of how to facilitate learning in your children's life based on whatever they're into at the time. Um, I don't look at myself as my child's teacher. I'm not standing in front of them as the all-knowing authority pouring knowledge into them. However, my role is very important and very hands-on. Unschooling is not for the lazy parent. <laughs> That's something so important to say because I think a lot of people hear the term and think, unschooling, you're not doing anything. But no, this is very different. It's bringing as many resources into my children's lives as possible to learn and grow from based on whatever they're interested in.
For sure. And your children, by the sound of it, have learned a variety of very interesting skills in this manner. In fact, I heard that one of yours is already a blacksmith. Yes. Well, and there are other interests, if you don't mind sharing these sort of personal details. No, I don't mind at all. My my kids are really fine with me sharing about them too. And my son, Devin, is a blacksmith. He has his own Etsy store where he sells his wares. He's a bladesmith specifically. He does other things too, but he's really into bladesmithing right now. Um, so he's built the forge. We facilitated him learning. I mean, he's at the age of 15. He knows how to learn. I think that's one of the biggest um, side effects of nurturing a child's interest is they they learn how to learn. And that's huge. I mean, that's like the greatest gift you could give another human being is to empower them in that way. So my son, Devin, is very much self-taught. I can't take much credit for his blacksmithing journey other than facilitating, you know, money and materials and giving our old woodshed to him to turn into a um, forge. So, I mean, we definitely facilitate it. My husband, Joe, helped. Um, he climbed on the roof of the shed and drilled a hole and cut a hole out for a chimney and he helped him. Helped him. But Devin does most of it himself. He's learned through YouTube. Um, through YouTube is such an amazing resource for visual learners. There's so many videos on there. If you type in blacksmithing, you know, backyard blacksmithing, you'd, you'd be blown away with, you could learn how to blacksmith Anthony like by tomorrow, if you really <laughs> researched it enough. Um, but yeah, I bring, I bring him to get coal and we learn the kind of coal to get. And he, he's, he's out there for hours and hours a day. He absolutely loves it. So that's what he's into right now. But he's also, um, he loves to connect with his friends online on Skype and they play games. They play really um, detailed games. A lot of it's medieval-based. He has a great interest in anything medieval or old-fashioned. He loves Vikings or anything to do with Vikings. So um, I facilitate that interest by subscribing to different magazines for him, by mentorships. We found a local blacksmith willing to come over and give him some safety tips and share some things with him. And um, mentorships are something that are so overlooked, I think, in our culture today. But when somebody's passionate about something, they love to share it with others. So sure. parents, if you're listening, th think outside the box. Think of what your kids are into and c connect with other passionate people that are into it because they would come over for more than likely for free just to share their passion with your children. Um, and that's exactly what this 75-year-old blacksmith did for Devin. He inspired him. And he was so inspired by Devin to know that this dying art was still alive within him and this whole generation um, of unschooling these 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 teen boys and girls come over and they, they blacksmith together so it's it's a really cool thing uh, my daughter tiffany she's 12 and right now she's into uh, videography and making videos and anything to do with film or videos or music is her thing she's more into pop culture than the other kids she loves the band one direction and so we got her tickets so i'm bringing her to go see them <laughs> very soon we can't wait, counting down the days. I just can't wait to see her so happy and to be there to witness her and all of that joy and excitement. But, um, yeah, we supplied different um, videography tools and tips and resources, and, and she has her own YouTube channel. And she's has an increased following of people that love her, what she has to offer. So she talks about being an unschooler and how she learns and what her passions in life are. But I would say, Anthony, above all, traveling and connecting with people is such a wonderful learning opportunity. And you can travel for so affordably if you really research it. So if money is an issue for parents, think outside the box. I have a parenting wellness center on Facebook where I share travel tips and really cheap, affordable ways to see the world with your family. So our kids have been all over the world and have learned so much 
from other people. Wow, yeah. So perhaps we can talk about some of the potential challenges of the kind of lifestyle and how you approach them so that people who want to integrate these kinds of approaches can learn from what you've learned by doing this full time for 15 years, right? Okay, well, I'd like to share that I think that the most challenging thing is, is finding balance for yourself. Uh, it's so important to keep your own needs met on this path, especially when you have a large family, because it is a very hands-on role. Um, there's many days that I don't even sit down because I'm busy facilitating everyone's learning and passions in life. So it's so important for my kids to see that learning never ends for me, that in humans in general, learning doesn't end because school is out and you're 18 years old. You Learning is supposed to feel good and it's expansive and you grow and learn your whole life. So I take the important responsibility of meeting my own needs, constantly be learning and facilitating my own interests and letting my kids witness bear witness to that. And also having things I'm really passionate about. Passion is one of the most infectious things, uh, a part of being human. And I, and I get so passionate when I have a new interest and it's really um, something my kids love. They, they, they share these interests right alongside of me and, and I, I love their own passion too. So, but, but the hard thing is to keep your cup full, I think. There's days where I get feel burnt out. There's days where I'm tired and need to rest and I need to really make sure I do that for myself because this isn't about being a martyr and I think that's so important. That's... <laughs> I don't want to be some martyr running around while my needs are on the back burner. The fine balance of all of this is learning to meet everybody's needs simultaneously. And that is an art because I want my children to learn from me that their needs matter when they have a family someday as much as the needs of the children. It's such an important responsibility to model this for them. So the hardest thing I think I do is taking care of myself, sitting down, having a cup of tea, putting my feet up, you know, asking for help because I'm I have so much energy. I'm a real go-getter and I have no problem taking care of a lot of needs that um, could easily be distributed. So I might say, oh, Devin, can you empty the dishwasher, please? I just want to sit down and have a cup of tea. And he's always so more than willing to help. Um, but yeah, just meeting your own needs, I think, is the biggest struggle for most unschooling mothers, especially. Right. And I, I think you touched upon a couple of things there that are really important because there's the old adage, which is, if you're no good to yourself, you're no good to anyone else, of course. The kids don't want Dana, mum, all burnt out and unable to actually continue to help and facilitate their learning. But also, there's, there's something tends to happen. When people conflate love with sacrifice, they see themselves as the sacrificial lamb on the altar of their children's needs. And when, as soon as people start taking that attitude, resentment can start occurring. And, you know, the kids don't want mum and dad to be resentful about taking care of them either. And that can't possibly be good for the level of goodwill in the relationship either. No, and it's such a huge responsibility, I think, for peace in the world to learn to meet your needs. And it's something that wasn't generally modeled to us. So it's something we have to learn from scratch, many of us, because martyrdom was looked at as somehow virtuous, I think, back when I was a child, that when your mother's exhausted and tired after scrubbing the floor all day or meeting the needs of everybody around you, then then you could show her genuine appreciation. I, I think it was a way that our parents had to gain 
the appreciation and get permission to take a break was from others because they were never taught how to do it for themselves. So there's so many layers of of reasoning as to why things were the way they were. But um, I, I take responsibility to take breaks when I need to, to fill my own cup, to enjoy life. You know, the other aspect that's so important is we're not living with control. I'm not punishing my kids or forcing them to do things all day. And, and when you live with an authoritarian paradigm, which 99.9% .9 of people do, it's not a joyous way to parent. It's it's not. And you need so many breaks. And it's it's pretty miserable, actually. I've worked with a lot of parents and I've seen it. They're not happy people forcing control and behavior modification and trying to alter these the natural state of these human beings that, of course, they need a ton of breaks. I, you really have to learn to live alongside of your kids and live joyously. So my break might look like, okay, I'm grabbing a cup of tea and going outside on the lawn and come and join me. I don't need to be away from my kids to get a break from something physical or busy or intense. I just invite them on. I say, let's just take a, take a break for a second. Those that want to join me, I'll be out on a blanket in the mm -hmm. sun. And um, the energy really just ebbs and flows naturally. So when there's an ebb, I, I jump on that ebb and, and I sit and relax and do something special for myself. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I can imagine how exhausting the the job of trying to manage the kids all the time would be. When I was a volunteer in primary school, I observed the teachers who had more of that sort of attitude than me. And I saw too often they'd ignore behavior that was irritating them for so long and then they just snap. Whereas for me, the, the most productive thing was to go, go down to the child's level and have a discussion about it. And because there was always goodwill be, between the children and I, I found I didn't really have to very, try very hard to get cooperation and learning because there was a mutual respect going on there. I feel like a lot of parents think that their job is as a parent, not as a friend. Uh, I'm sure you have very many views on that cliche. Well, too many parents are trying to be friends with their children these days when what children need is a parent. They need structure. Would you like to comment? Certainly. I just first want to touch on the comment about respect, that you cannot force respect. You can force obedience and it can give you the illusion that a child respects you because they're obeying you, but that's not inherent respect. That's not real, authentic respect. Respect begets respect, that when you respect another human being, they naturally will respect you in turn, especially your children when you're, uh, when you're modeling this for them. So kindness and understanding and respecting everybody's needs is what respect is all about. So just because the child's obedient does not mean they're respectful, and we've gotten that so confused in our culture. So, yeah, being a dictator is exhausting. There, I don't know many happy dictators in history, to be honest with you. So <laughs> this life is about, you know, parenting is supposed to be joyful. When you tap into the natural way of things, it feels really good and it's very fulfilling. And that's why I had four kids, because it just was a really awesome experience. But there are challenges such as burnout and finding balance within yourself and always deprogramming from your own upbringing. That's so huge. There's so many cultural messages that are passed down all around you and from your own experience that one of the hardest things is really unbrainwashing yourself and, and a lot of self-talk, a lot of inner talk from your heart and asking yourself, is this something I need to fear? Is this something that I need to um, 
really need to think about in this way. So I think in the beginning of this journey, especially is when there's so much deprogramming and self-talk and, and stopping and breathing and not reacting. And that's one of the things I, I feel I specialize in helping people with my parenting coaching is how to reprogram themselves and how to stop before reacting and how to respond with love instead of react with fear. If you think it would be useful, can you give some examples of the kind of tapes that play in people's head when they first enter into this partnership rather than authoritarian style of parenting? And what are actually the approaches to becoming less anxious and worried about, about these things? Well, I think the programming of just meeting the parents' needs is a deep-seated one. I think that so many parents, people sometimes don't feel like meeting the needs of their kids because it wasn't done for them. So there's layers of resentment and frustration from their own needs not being met as children. But we were controlled with fear constantly as children. Parents would fear us into not doing something that would require them extra effort to participate in for our safety. They would fear us and, and really warped our inner knowing and our instinct by controlling us with things like, don't do that, you'll get hurt, or don't go near that, it'll make you sick, or, you know, these just really um, blatant blanket statements that were untrue, that we bought into, that caused us uh, really irrational fears in life that we're still healing from. And um, so much of it's due to parental laziness, or, you know, not having the patience, or, you know, basically all centering around the needs of the parent. But a side effect of that is, yeah, it may have been easy to control us with fear. The side effect of that, it really warped a lot of us growing up and we had irrational fears and it took us years to undo the damage from parents not being authentic and honest with us about things. Yeah, I think a, a bit of, a bit less fearfulness could do all of us some good. I mean, I think I, I sometimes find myself being overly anxious. And I wonder, you know, where did I ingest all this fear? I'd just like to read a quote from your book on that particular topic. Certainly. As you wrote, pushing through fear and moving towards trust is an important aspect of the life we choose to live with our kids. Most of us were controlled by fear-inducing tactics from teachers and caregivers. The worst case scenarios were forced on us. And we did what someone else wanted because we were afraid of the punitive consequences. Think back. I know you can remember a few instances where this was true. Fear is a tool used to motivate others to do what you want. And it works well in just doing that. Mainstream parenting promotes this tool to control our kids to meet our needs. Kids believe what their parents say and treat their words as facts. The words are paired with fear and become their new associations, forevermore a part of them. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the main alternative. You refer to fear as a tool. Now that you've thrown fear out of the toolbox as a motivator, what are the most primary tools that you have to use to effectively deal with what are sometimes called in communication circles needs conflicts when there's a apparent conflict between one member of the family meeting their needs and another rather than use fear as a tactic for motivation what other options do you have available to you i think one of the biggest options is awareness you can tell when you're starting to go down that path when your child asks about something or asks if you can help them with something you can feel it well up that oh i just don't feel like doing this or oh i'm scared of the outcome of this and 
when you're in reaction, you tend to fear causes control. You tend to want to control your child and um, threaten subtly or coerce them not to do something. And so it's a matter of being in a state of awareness of when that's happening to you internally and stopping and breathing and really thinking to yourself, is this um, is this um, reaction that I'm going to have that's fear induced and that I'm going to use to control my child, what's best for them in the long run? It might be easy for me now, but is, is it what's best for them in the long run? I think it's so important to take into account that this parenting is an investment for the future of their, their mental state later. I mean, so many people are running around now with self-help books and gurus and finding spirituality and chasing to find peace. And I mean, that that's just normal, but that that shouldn't be normal. That That's um, as impressive it is, as it is, as so many people are trying to find healing and peace and well-being and centeredness, that should that's our natural state, and it was robbed from us as children. So I'm saving my kids from years of the chasing self-help by by breathing and asking myself, is this something I should be fearing, or is this a conditioned belief that I have? And I might say to my kids, huh, I'm thinking about whether that's safe. What do you think? And we, we might have a discussion, and my son might say, no, it's totally fine. Um, fire is a big one for parents, children who want to explore and play with fire. When Devin um, wanted to, he's a fire twirler, so when he wanted to start that hobby, um, he learned in Australia from a mentor. And I was a little nervous at first when I started watching him with it. And my so my, my knee-jerk response was, oh, you're going to get burned and get hurt. Um, and it would have been really easy for me to, to ease my own discomfort, which is a narcissistic perspective to only be focused on that. I could have eased my own discomfort and said, no, no, I don't want you doing this. And you're going to get hurt. You can get killed or you get burned, which is a more cultural response. Instead, I breathe through the discomfort and said, well, my need is for my child to be safe, but his need is to learn and grow from this. And he feels safe and comfortable. So that is another cultural belief to kind of twist around in your mind a bit. I think that we've all been conditioned to believe that parents know best. So this kind of blows that whole perspective out of the water. It turns the trust onto the child. And I always say to myself that my child instinctually knows best without cultural conditioning, without all the, the fear-based tactics that most parents use. I trust my children as much as I trust myself. So when they say that they feel something safe, um, I trust them and we work together and by their side to ensure that. But um, fire is one of the things that comes up a lot for people for some reason. Yeah, I know the classic one is parents would say, even you use it as a, a talking point for advocating hitting the child's hand if they're going near a hob or something like that. And I've always thought, you know, if you're near enough to hit the child's hand, then you're near enough to pick them up and wave their hand over the hob so that they can feel that it's hot and say, you know, see how hot that is when you wave your hand above it you don't want to go any closer because it'll burn you. There'd never be any need to use fear or a punitive consequence to discourage people taking risky behaviour. Were there any situations in which you did experiment with and regret or feel the need to or justified in limiting some behaviour on the grounds of safety, particularly with young ones? Um, being by their side at all times and redirection with really little ones, you know, 18 months old, two years old. Uh, redirection is a wonderful tool if they're interested in something and they, they say they're putting a fork in an outlet, which I never experienced um, personally, but I know parents have dealt with that. Or redirection and getting them involved in something else is so easy at that age and it's much kinder. You don't need to inflict pain for a child to connect a memory 
um, with that. And I think that's a deeply held cultural belief that we need to make a child cry for them to learn and to, for it to really to take root. But when this happens, when punishments happen like that, the lesson that we think children are learning is never the case. It's always the overall lesson that parents are mean and confusing and they're not to be trusted, that they say they love you, but then they hit me. And so hitting must mean love. And it just warps so much within a human being. It's confusing. Um, so redirection is the kindest way until they can understand what could happen. So we, we talk about it with our kids when they're old enough for safety. Yes, I think it's important to understand that just because these rules are not imposed on children from on high, it doesn't mean that conversations can't take place where concerns are discussed and aired out and things are brought into the children's awareness. And when you're not the when you're not the wall between your child and their desires and they, they trust you, this deep trust is built and they turn to you for information. They know you're a leader in their lives and they turn to you as a guided resource. So if you are there and you don't punish, there's such a solid intrinsic uh, foundation of connection that when you say, oh, if you put the fork in that, sweetie, you could get a zap, it hurts, it electrocutes you. Let's go on YouTube and I'll show you a couple, not, not totally traumatizing videos, but you can explain through YouTube or other resources or books or, or just simple discussion what getting a shock means and what, what the electricity is doing. And when you say this to a child without threat and without fear, they believe you, they, they thank you. I remember before going into stores with my kids when they were little, giving them the information in the car before we went in. You know, I love to prepave the situation, have a short discussion and just say, oh, inside the store, this isn't a place where it's appropriate to run around and scream and throw things. You know, we just want to kind of stay with me. I'll each give you a piece of the list. Stay, stay close to me, please. Or you can go find what's on the list. But uh, running around here isn't appropriate to the store owners. They don't like that. You know, I might say something like that. And they, they literally thank me and they appreciate it. They, they turn to me as a guided resource. They want to do good. Children don't inherently want to raise hell. I mean, that's not part of what children want. They, they want to be good people and they want to know what's appropriate in certain situations, like before you go into a library. So they turn to me for that. They've even turned to me and asked, well, this is another topic, but our children have freedom in every area of their lives, including freedom with language. So my children can swear. They have permission to do that. Not even permission. That's just so, so the average yeah, person yeah. listening to this interview can understand mm -hmm. Uh, my kids don't need permission because we don't live with the authoritarian paradigm. But just to give you an idea, uh, my children have freedom to use any words they want to describe however they want. Now, they don't run around here like truckers and screaming F this, F that because they have freedom. However, they might use um, swears in the same way I do. I don't have issues with it. I might drop a, a hell here and there or a damn here and there. So uh, before we have... <laughs> I've used... <clears throat> oh, Yeah. <laughs> I've used worse myself, um, but I don't have a lot of issues surrounding it. I think if you're raised really religiously, it might be, and I know morals um, shift from family to family, so it's just really personal to each family. But before we have friends come over, new friends, my kids will ask them, are they comfortable with swearing? Are they cool with swearing? That, that's one of the first questions they ask. They want, to, they want to respect people. They inherently want to respect others. They don't want to offend people. They understand this. So I might say, oh, I'm not really sure how they feel about it. So just be aware and, you know, just be conscious of that. And they completely do. I mean, it, parenting does not have to be that easy. Children aren't um, these beasts that need to be tamed and trained. They are human beings who want to do good and they want to be um, doing what's you know, socially acceptable in certain situations. We, we are parents on the fringe, so we are rebels in our own sense and we push limits. Just being who we are as advocates and activists, 
So our children have that same energy with certain things, but not in a disrespectful way. I mean, you can't promote peace with disrespect. You can't. And my children know this. Wow, superb. You've spoken quite a bit about balancing the needs of members of the family with other needs of the members of the family. And I've heard people talk about deals as a way of balancing the needs of parent and child. Like, they agree beforehand what will need to be done and then later on hold the child to the deal. Now, we had a bit of a conversation about that online the other day. Um, maybe you can say what your view on that is and why you don't think it's a very good way of managing the needs. Well, first, let me say that I really love honest, authentic conversations. So I appreciated that you were open enough to, to uh, toy around with the perspective that I had and, and hear it. And I also loved hearing your perspective because it opened my eyes in some ways. So um, to me, I don't think deals are necessary. I think that when you make a deal, it's, there's an energy of distrust there that you have to, because once a deal is made, then with a child, you have to force them or coerce them to hold up their end of the deal. Now, if it was truly a deal, an authentic choice, and not something a child was truly manipulated into, it'd be something that they inherently just instinctually wanted to do because it felt good. Now, a deal seems like it has to be made when it's kind of a manipulation of a child. And if you do this, then I'll do this. And that is definitely an authoritarian approach. And I just don't think it's ever necessary to manipulate or coerce somebody through a deal. A deal to me is like, if you do this, I'll do this. Now, I know there's business deals, and I know that's a whole different maybe definition or level of what deal is. That's like a, but that's with two adults in equal power making a mutual decision about something together. It still has to be enforced, though. Because there's penalty if the deal isn't upheld on one person's end, even with a business deal. So I don't make deals with my children because I don't. there's no penalty for them to hold up an end of something because it's all about internal motivation. And that wouldn't feel good to me because it's not fluid. It's too, it's too set and it's like a done deal. I, I want to always be able to grow and change and change my mind and be flexible. Um, I have parents tell me all the time, like, well, isn't consistency important? Don't you have to be consistent? And I say, well, yeah, yeah. My consistency is my flexibility, my unconditional love, and my willingness to change my mind. Yeah, my children to change their mind. And to me, that is the real world. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, I remember saying that your view on a deal being a done deal reminded me of something I heard from an Indian philosopher called Osho when he said he didn't like the word relationship because it sounded like it was finished, a relationship is done. So he preferred words like relating because it's in a, we're in a constant state of a moving relationship to one another. And, uh, you know, we even use that term, close the deal. Right. And think about it. If there's a deal in business that's broken, you sue somebody, there's punishment, there's penalty there's it has to be upheld in some way and i know that there are times where it is um necessary in the business world and so forth and but in the parenting dynamic in in the in the relationship that you have with your children it, it's never a necessity there's always ways to just discuss things and work it out more peacefully yeah you touched upon punishments as a way of motivating behavior and i think that a lot of people are now coming into the awareness that when you punish someone to motivate their behavior, it's, it's kind of like 
if I leave my wallet out at a party, I don't really want no one to steal my wallet because they're afraid of being punished and going to jail if they steal my wallet. I'd rather it was because they had values and thought, you know, I would like to have my wallet stolen. But there is a surge in media that claims to be progressive on using positive reinforcement or rewards instead of punishments. I'm sure that you have a lot to say on the use of, of rewards as a way of motivating behavior as well as punishments. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I definitely think it's a more evolved approach than spanking. So it's on the continuum of moving toward more peace and respect. I, I, I can understand that it's higher up on the scale than spanking, but I have to say that it's still operating in the authoritarian paradigm. It's still, I, I don't want to control my children through external um, motivation. They don't need to gain uh, something, a reward for good behavior. I want them to do something like you said, because it feels like the right thing to do. So I think when you punish and uh, when you reward and punish, is that what you mean? Like through rewards, like you can get this if you do this kind of thing? It's particularly things like that. Or if you read, I'll give you some candies. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. That, that does not follow um, a peaceful parenting dynamic at all for me. In fact, it's very focused on meeting the adult's needs and it's not focused on the child's needs at all. Um, I know it's well-intentioned, though, so I'm not making people out that do this to be evil or something. I, I know it's well-intentioned. However, it's not the most uh, aware style of parenting that you could do because um, the child, you want a child to learn to read and to read based on their own internal motivation. That's when true learning really happens. When they have it, and that's when real learning happens. A child's never going to use learning as a tool to get what they want in life, which is what reading is. Reading, writing, and maths are all tools to help us get more of what we want in life. I want reading to be something my children sought out and they desire to communicate and want to express themselves, not because they get a piece of candy. It's completely um, disconnected from the true purpose of it. Therefore, a child's never going to have the true need and they're going to associate external gain, not internal motivation and passion and desire. So you can rob a child of that to make you feel like a good parent because your child's reading a year earlier. If you have in internal needs because it's your own issues and you really want to feel like a good parent, um, so you push your child and we can control our children like that. I could have done that with all my kids. That would have been very easy. Would have made me look like a very good mom. However, it would have warped my children and could have damaged them for the rest of their lives with association to the written word. And I would never risk that. So I'd rather them wait until they're truly ready and they find reading um, as a useful tool for themselves and really learn based on that than for a piece of candy, which they can have whenever they want anyway. Also, I'm pretty sure that you don't want children associating candies with being a reward. I mean, I spoke about this with my girlfriend and she, she mentioned that she thought that was a eating disorder waiting to happen because no candy seen as some reward. Well, yeah, it definitely causes a, a warped um, association with something sweet that is somehow something to reward yourself with. Um, my, my kids have freedom to eat as much candy as they want, yet they they do exactly what I do, and sometimes they enjoy it, and other times they, they don't. So I don't put any kind of energy or taboo or more focused, you know, energy around certain foods more than the, more than others. And I don't want them to have any eating issues. So that's another important realization. Yeah, for sure. So tell your girlfriend right on. Right. And I would hear someone in my comeback with the argument that, well, you know, my son or my daughter doesn't know 
the value of reading because he or she can't read yet. He doesn't know that Treasure Island is, you know, a wonderful thing to read, a great adventure story. And in order to get over the hump, because reading is not very fun when you're not good at it. I mean, I'm a piano tutor and I know that a lot of kids struggle with the reading part. And like you, I've got a more child-centered attitude in the way I teach. So if kids aren't getting much out of reading, I... Well, reading isn't fun when it's forced. Reading is always fun when it's your true internal motivation. I've never had a moment where I've said this reading sucks right now, ever. Right. As an adult. And my children never have either because they... Um, when reading's forced or manipulated or coerced, however gently, of course, there's times where it's miserable. Um, that's not part of my children's reality at all. So they don't have any negative association with reading. Right. Right. And even in those early stages where it's pretty difficult to read, you found that your children embraced it with desire. Well, it's never really been difficult, actually. It's interesting. There's so many deeply held beliefs that it's going to be harder for a child if you don't start in this perfect window of time when they're really young, but that's, it's sad when parents feel that way and then they promote that as being truth as opposed to personal experience. Because um, in my personal experience, having uh, two children who read amazingly well, they learned through really unconventional means, but they picked right up that they're above the reading level that most kids would. I mean, my daughter's first, well, Devin's first books were the Harry Potter series. I mean, he skipped every single dumbed down uh, see Dick Run kind of book ever. Those were the first books he read and, and instantly he picked it right up because his brain was ready. Everything lines up perfectly. It's a complete lie and myth that if you don't get it, get it done early, it's harder. It never is. In my own experience, my son Devin will say, it happened so beautifully and naturally. It happened just like weaning or just like when he left the family bed. It's as natural as that just as natural as walking. What? When did your child learn how to walk? Well, it was such a natural process. I don't really know exactly. I know it was somewhere around 11 months old when they started getting up little by little. And the same is true for reading. It's it's such a slow, beautiful, natural process. And it's simple and it feels good. And so everything you think you know about reading is false <laughs> in, the, in the realm of natural respect for the process and so forth. So it's hard for me when I hear other um, proponents even for a more peaceful dynamic share this misinformation that you have to do it earlier it's harder because that's completely false i can certainly echo that from my experience as a piano tutor because sometimes we've had adult students who are convinced they won't be any good at playing because they have their children now because they're older they can actually understand the concepts much easier and found adult students can really excel at the piano very quickly and at things like reading music. Some parents would make the argument that they have a responsibility to deliver their child to their adult self, knowing certain things and having very particular skills because otherwise they've neglected their own duty as a parent. Can you talk a bit about what you think your responsibilities are to your children's adult selves and how you make sure you fulfill those standards. Yeah, this is this life is really powerful in that it's a complete reevaluation re of what your role is as a parent. My role is not to train my child to be an adult. So that in itself, that one statement kind of uh, blows people's minds because they've only seen parenting through one filter. My role is to help my children become what they're meant to be in life. That's not my decision. It's wherever they're guided, and I help facilitate that. But above all, I want them to be happy 
whole people and fulfilled and no matter who they are without labels, without the stigma of them not fitting into a box, I, I don't mind. Um, they're being, a, you know, um, eccentric and being their wonderful selves. So, um, yeah, my role is just to ensure they're, that they learn that everybody's needs matter in any kind of dynamic, that they care about others. And they, I do that through modeling by showing them that I care about them and valuing them and their choices. So they're, they're, it's a lot to swallow. It's a lot to take in. I understand that. Um, but and if you think this is something that's just philosophically making sense, I think really learning that it is possible. There are thousands and thousands of families living like this all over the world right now, and it's growing in numbers. I mean, I've connected with people from all over the world that you wouldn't even expect from um, politicians to doctors to lawyers to actors. I mean, there's people that are really coming into this as being a viable, powerful way to parent. So um, reach out, ask for answers. If you do a coaching call with me within one hour, I, I swear you will be so inspired to um, learn these tools that to apply it to your individual life because unschooling looks different in every single home. So philosophically, yes, there's certain things that we practice and live by, I guess you could say, but it's individual that depending upon your morals and values and who you are and, and so forth. So anybody, I believe any child can live this way. It's the parents that have a really hard time because it depends on how conditioned they are to, and how set in their ways they are. Very oftentimes, it's one parent that comes to this awareness, and they want me to try to convince the other parent to live this way. And that's something I like to say that I, I can't do that. I feel that's controlling to me. I don't have any desire to force somebody else to learn about their, this life against their will. It goes against everything I stand for. In fact, I'm all about internal motivation and respecting what somebody wants to learn when they want to learn it. So I'm not somebody that likes to convince somebody else, but if a partner's receptive and wanting to learn, I'm so happy to bring a couple to the same level of awareness together on a journey through like a couple session. Wonderful. Now I want to talk about some of your enterprises. You have put on a conference, the Life, Cro the Life Crocs, not the Life Crocs conference. That's uh, frequented by a different individual. The Life Rocks Conference, uh, and you've done that four times, I believe. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I facilitated uh, several conferences, but mine is called the Life Rocks, well, mine and my husband's, I should say, is the Life Rocks Conference, and that's held in the North Conway, New Hampshire area, which is in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. We've done it four years in a row. I've also held and organized conferences in Texas. I've co-facilitated and organized one in Australia. Um, in England, I'm, I'm doing my first um, Peaceful Parenting and Natural Learning Conference this September in Peterborough, UK. So I'm excited about that. That's hopefully going to be a yearly event. Um, and, and I was invited to France and Canada. So I'm, it's kind of exploding right now, the desire to learn about this life and radical unschooling. So I am happy to go anywhere somebody wants to bring me and help, you know, co-facilitate and organize an event in their area to bring this awareness to people. I love speaking about it. It's my passion. So um, just reach out to me if anyone's listening and they're interested in bringing me to their area to speak, even a small workshop or a big event. Fantastic. Could you also tell us about some of your work as the Unnanny? We've all heard of Super Nanny, but not everyone has heard that you actually coach other parents as the Unnanny. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, this is something I'm really passionate about. I, I love it. I, I do most of my parenting coaching over the phone or Skype right now because of the needs of my family. But something that I do um, by request only, and I work it out privately with families. Um, and I don't strongly advertise it because it's, um, again, it's something I only do maybe once every other month because of the needs of my own family right now. But I people hire me and I go into their homes and spend three or four days with them and help them learn about this life hands-on as, as normal issues arise. So much like the show, The Super Nanny, I do the same thing, but with a peaceful parenting philosophy. We Every night we sit down and we talk about the day's events and how things could have been handled differently. I, I, have, I have yet to leave a home where the, where the parents and children weren't in a state of just such bliss and awareness of learning about this because kids, kids want to be heard. And I love being with little kids and working with them and helping them communicate their needs to their parents because when, it, when a child's raised in an authoritarian way, they really shut down from communicating their true needs because their, their true needs maybe were never met because the focus is on behavior. So I help not only the parents, but the children voice their needs to the parents so the parents can be more receptive and retrain their mind to see things differently. So it's, it's an awesome experience. So if anyone's interested in learning more about that, you can send me a message through Facebook or my website. Okay, cool. So for any parent who have children in mainstream schools, what can they do about helping to instill the principles of the unschooling life at home time and also maybe mitigate some of the authoritarian messages they're getting? Believe it or not, I work with a lot of parents who have kids in schools. They, they understand peaceful parenting and really want to apply that, but they're not quite ready or may not have a partner on board to pull their child from the institution altogether. I would say to not get caught up in the institution's agenda, whether it's a public or private school, Montessori, Waldorf, it doesn't matter. It's all the same agenda, and that's the needs of the institution coming before family. You need to ask permission from the school to be with your child, to take your child out of school. It's not true freedom in any sense of the word. Um, which is really unfortunate, but you can empower your yourself and your child by not really getting caught up in the whole system, not getting caught up, caught up in grades mattering, or, um, you know, if you need to take your child out of school, you, you be their advocate. You, you, you say, you say so, and you take the power into your own hands and um, go and speak to a, a parent, a teacher, if there's issues with the teacher, get your child's grade or, or class switched. I mean, you have so much power within the system if you just know it they're not going to tell you that but you need to just take it and be your child's voice and biggest advocate okay so i think that's all the time we have but it was really great to have you on the show and uh, i hope we'll speak to you again sometime soon for people who want to get more information about you whether it's just on the philosophy of unschooling get a copy of your book which i highly recommend people do or look at your other services, including being an unnanny or a public speaker. Where can they find your critical details? Can you give us your website address? I know that will be coming up on the screen in YouTube. Sure, um, my website is danamartin.com and that's D-A-Y-N-A-M-A-R-T-I-N. And I have a vast amount of articles and videos that explain more about unschooling philosophy. And um, I've appeared on a few different television shows, and those episodes are all on there, too, where you can hear me really challenged with the tough questions from Dr. Phil and, and other um, TV hosts about this philosophy. I, I love to speak about it. So I'm happy to come speak at your event, large or small, anytime. Another thing that isn't quite as known about me is that I'm a childbirth teacher and doula. 
And I'm very, very passionate about natural birth. And I wrote a book called Sexy Birth. So you can also pick my book up through my website about that. That's what started me on this whole path, actually, is my natural births and my children and helping other people achieve the birth they were meant to have. So that is something really near and dear to my heart. I'm also a raw food chef and I'm a vegan chef and I love to talk about that. And I have a website called rawenvy.blogspot.com. You could check out different recipes if you're interested in that. And uh, our family blog is the sparklingmartins.com. So check out what our family's up to. I post things about um, what all of my kids are doing and blacksmithing and all of our travel opportunities and what we see and what we learn. So um, our whole family is here as a resource for you. Check us out. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And if anyone's interested in learning more about radical unschooling, I'm here for you. You're not alone. And whatever I can offer you, please uh, use me as a resource. So thank you so much for having me. I love your show, Anthony. It's awesome. And uh, I never miss an episode. Thank you. Dana also does her own online radio show and you can catch up with the old episodes that have already gone out on her YouTube channel. It's called Try This at Home, which I think is a fantastic title rather than Try This at Home. Try This at Home, yeah. It's um, produced through uh, ucy.tv and it's every Wednesday night live at 8 Eastern Standard Time. But I take calls from anyone uh, worldwide, so feel free to call into the show or be a, if you're interested in you know asking a question live on my show or doing a live coaching call, I offer that probably once a month on my show. So just find me on Facebook. I have two different pages. I have an author page, um, but I encourage you to subscribe to my personal page um, to be able to just connect more personally with me. So thank you again for having me on and I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you. You too, have a lovely day. Thank you, take care, bye. That was Dana Martin, and you can find her at danamartin.com. If you would like to support yourself and the show all in one fell swoop, you can find my personal development course at beyourselfandloveit.com under the course tab. Until next week, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.